0: Well, good morning, everyone. Um, Today, we are starting a new sermon series in the book of Acts. That study is going to take us week by week through most of the rest of this year. And because of that, before we jump into the text that Lexi just read for us, I want to take just a moment and give a brief introduction to the book of Acts and also to the sermon series a little more broadly. So the book of Acts is in the New Testament, And it follows chronologically right after the gospel accounts of Jesus' life. It comes right after Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Then we get Acts. And it picks up the story right after Jesus has been raised from the dead. So in those gospel accounts, we see the story of Jesus being born. We see his ministry. We see his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And then in Acts chapter 1, we pick up the story where our Lord Jesus after having been raised from the dead, is ascended into heaven to sit at the right hand of God the Father. The book of Acts is written by Luke. Uh, He is one of the gospel writers, and in that way, uh, this book of Acts is sort of a part two to his account of of the early church and the story of Jesus. And it's because of that, the account of the early church, that we have decided to study this book this year. Um, As you may have noticed, we're starting our sermon series in Acts chapter 10. So it might strike you as a little unusual that we're starting a sermon series right in the middle of a book of the Bible, and so I thought I would just comment on that just a little bit. Uh, For those of you who don't know, our church has recently gone through a merger. About six months ago, we merged two churches together. And for most of this year, all of our sermon series have been focused on what does it mean to be a church. The story of the early church that starts in Acts chapter 10 provides an incredibly clear picture of what it means to bear witness to Jesus. It provides an incredibly clear picture of the mission of the church, how to hold out the gospel to the world. And so, given that this is our first year together as a church, we thought it would be a good thing to focus on the mission of our life together. I should also comment that there is a fairly natural break in the book of Acts between chapters 9 and chapter 10. In the first nine chapters, we see the focus on the gospel spreading to the Jewish people, the nation of Israel. But in Acts chapter 10, where we're going to start today, we see that the gospel is spreading to all people, to the Gentiles and to the rest of the world. I should also uh, just say one more thing, and that is that we actually completed a short sermon series on Acts 1 through 9 a couple of years ago. So, if you're so inclined, you can head to our website and you can find sermons from Acts chapters 1 through 9 there for you to listen to and sort of catch up on the story, as it were. Now, as I mentioned, Acts chapter 10 is really a turning point in the book of Acts because we see that the gospel is moving outside of the nation of Israel to the Gentiles, to people who were not Jewish. And friends, that really changed everything in the story of God's plan to bring a people from every tribe and tongue and nation. You see, in the Old Testament, to be part of God's people, you had to be Jewish. You had to be able to trace your family's ancestry back to David and Abraham in the Old Testament. Or if you weren't born Jewish, you had to become Jewish to be part of God's people, but it doesn't work that way anymore. And the reason it doesn't work that way is because of what happened in Acts chapter 10 in a little town on the Mediterranean Sea several thousand years ago. And so with that brief introduction then to our sermon series, I hope that we can turn our attention to our, our text for this morning. Now, the text, that, uh, if, the text that Lexi just read a minute ago were a newspaper article The big headline would read, The Gospel Goes to the Gentiles. And to our modern ears, I will admit that that sounds like a little bit of a slow news day. Think about for a moment what has happened in Acts up until this point. We saw in Acts chapter 1, the Lord Jesus ascended into heaven to sit at the right hand of God the Father. We saw the Holy Spirit come in Pentecost. We saw thousands and thousands of Jewish people being saved in the name of Jesus. And even in Acts chapter 9, the apostle Peter raises a little girl from the dead. And so maybe it's kind of a slow news day that some guy named Cornelius gets saved in a little town on the Mediterranean Sea. But let me assure you, friends, this passage in the Bible changes everything. It is the turning point In the Bible, for God's plan to bring to himself a people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. And so as we study this this section of Scripture today, I hope that we are going to develop a deeper understanding of what does it mean to be God's people and how do we fit into that plan to bring the gospel to the nations. So as we approach our text then uh, this morning... I'd like to uh, sort of approach that in a couple of ways. First, I'd like to just go back over the text. It was sort of a longer uh, passage of Scripture, and I want to go through and make sure we pull out the key details so we're all on the same page about what actually happened. And then we're going to go back and sort of pull out the key issues for us to understand. So if you've got your your Bible open in Acts chapter 10, um, we start uh, the story in verses 1 through 8 where we set the scene in a small town on the Mediterranean coast of Caesarea. Now, this town was the seat of Roman power in the region. And there, we meet one of our main characters named Cornelius. Now, we don't know a lot about Cornelius. In fact, everything we know comes from this chapter in the Bible. And what we're told is that he is a Roman centurion. He is a military man in the oppressive army, the occupying army of Israel. We're also told that he is a man who fears God, who lives in such a way to give glory to God by the alms that he gives to the poor. And and verse 3 even says that he prays continually to the Lord. And it's this man who we meet, and shortly after we meet him, he encounters an angel of the Lord. And friends, that's when we know that something big is about to happen. Because if you're new to the Bible, you might sort of think like angels are all over the place, that they just, you know, every chapter there's an angel of the Lord coming around, That's just not true. Angels are actually pretty rare in the Bible. And when they show up, it's big time. So, for example, when Jesus was born, there were angels of the Lord. When Jesus was resurrected, there were angels of the Lord. When Jesus was ascended, there were angels of the Lord. And when Cornelius gets saved, there are angels of the Lord. So we know what's going on in this chapter is going to really have a huge impact on God's plan for the gospel in the world. It's this angel that tells Cornelius to send for a man named Peter in the city of Joppa. And Cornelius, being a man who fears the Lord, does what he's told. And so then we crossfade into scene two, which picks up in chapter 8 where we're now in the city of Joppa, which is about 30 miles south of Caesarea, still on the Mediterranean coast. And there we meet a man named Peter, who is on a rooftop, hungry, waiting for something to eat. Now, unlike Cornelius, we know quite a lot about Peter. Peter was an apostle of Jesus. He was a Jewish fisherman whom Jesus had called to follow him. And because of that, Peter had a front row seat to Jesus' ministry on earth. He was even there at something that we call the transfiguration, when the glory of Jesus shone into the world for just a moment. Peter was the man who denied Jesus before his death. And Peter was the man who was forgiven by Jesus after his resurrection and told to take care of the sheep. Peter was the man who preached at Pentecost, And he was one of the main characters in the first nine chapters of Acts, leading the charge for the advancement of the gospel to the nation of Israel. So it's no surprise that we find him here again at the center of this story on this rooftop. And as he is waiting for something to eat, he falls into a trance and receives a vision from heaven. Now, this vision might strike you as a little strange. We're going to spend quite a lot of time unpacking it. But let's look at just what happened. It starts in verse 11. And in this vision... A sheet descends from heaven, and in this sheet there are all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air, and Peter is told to rise and kill and eat. And despite the fact that he is hungry, he says, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. You see, this voice from heaven was telling him to do something that the Old Testament had told him not to do. In the Old Testament, God has told his people to only eat certain kinds of animals and that to eat others would make you unclean. But here God is telling Peter, no, rise and eat. These animals are no longer unclean for you. So just then, as this uh, vision ends, these men from Caesarea that Cornelius sent show up. And Peter, being told by the Spirit to follow them, goes down. He meets them and they travel back to Caesarea. Scene three then of this story picks up in verse 25 where Cornelius and Peter meet and they explain to one another what has happened. And then in verse 34, that we're not going to study today, Peter goes to preach the gospel to them. And after he preaches the gospel, these men, these Gentile men, Cornelius and the people and his family with them, They receive the Holy Spirit, and in verse 48, they are baptized in the name of Jesus into the family of God. Now, as I mentioned, I'm sorry we're not going to cover verses 34 and following today. We have too much work to do in the first 33 verses of this uh, text, and so we're kind of going to do a two-part series on Acts chapter 10. Next week, we're going to come back and talk about the gospel presentation, the Holy Spirit, and the baptizing. But for today, we need to focus on what in the world happened. Because when you heard this story of the sheet coming down and a voice telling Peter to eat of these animals, and when you saw that Peter went and he actually ate with the Gentiles, did you think to yourself, wow, that changes everything? You'd be forgiven if you didn't. Because even Peter was a little confused. If you notice in verse 17, it says, he was perplexed about what was going on. So you're probably in good company, but we're going to spend some time and try and understand what in the world happened and why did that change? Why was that such a big deal? And I'll tell you the answer. The answer is this vision changed what it meant to be part of the people of God. That brings us really to the first point of our sermon today which is that in Christ, there is only one people of God. In Christ, there is only one people of God. And we see that coming out in the text in two ways. The first is by looking at the beginning and the end. What happened? At the beginning, we have a Roman centurion Gentile who does not know Jesus. And we have a, a Jewish man named Peter, a fisherman. These men are enemies. The Gentiles and the Jews have been enemies for generations and they start as a distinct people. But Peter preaches the gospel. The Holy Spirit comes and they are baptized in the same name of Jesus and so become part of the family of God together. There is a unity that happens in the gospel by the end of this chapter. In fact, when Peter goes back to Jerusalem in chapter 11 to tell his Jewish brothers in Christ what had happened, they were astonished, not because Peter preached the gospel, but because Peter welcomed these brothers into the fellowship that was only due to Christians. He ate with them, and he baptized them in the name of Jesus. And that was offensive and shocking to the Jewish Christians. But friends, there was at the end of this story only one people of God. And we see Peter explain that to us, how exactly it happened, in the way that he interprets these, this vision for us. You see, at the beginning of this text, we see that this vision is really predominantly about food. He's saying to, God is saying to Peter, go ahead and eat all kinds of food. No longer are there any unclean or clean foods. But he's doing that for a really important reason. He's doing that because Peter needed to be able to eat those foods in order to be able to eat with the Gentiles. And we see by verse 28 that Peter has it figured out. Peter has it figured out that we're not really just talking about food being clean and unclean. We're talking about people being clean and unclean. Take a look at verse 28. It says this, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. At the beginning of this chapter, we had an unclean Roman centurion. By the end of this chapter, we have a clean brother in Christ who has been baptized in the same way that Peter was. Friends, this changed everything. In fact, this text in Acts chapter 10 is really a fulfillment of what Jesus told his disciples what happened in Acts chapter 1. Remember, in Acts chapter 1, before Jesus was ascended, he said to his disciples, while I am gone, while you're waiting for me to return, you are going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and you're going to be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria, and you're going to be my witnesses to the end of the earth. And right here, when Cornelius becomes part of the family of God by being baptized in the name of Jesus, that mission to the rest of the world gets started. It was an amazing transformation. And in Acts chapter 10, we learn that there is only one people of God. But like we said before, it wasn't always that way. It hasn't always been that way, that there were only one people of God. So I think the second question we need to ask of this text is, what happened? What changed? How did we go from having a distinct set of nations to one people of God? Well, that brings us to the second point of the sermon for today. The first point was that in Christ, there are only one people of God. The second point is, because Jesus makes all people clean. There are only one people of God because Jesus makes all people clean. I wonder if you noticed in this passage how often the idea of being clean and unclean has come up. It's really central to the idea of what is going on. And, um, you know, that is sort of a foreign idea to most of us. And so really to understand what happened to change the fundamental nature of what it meant to be part of the people of God, we need to go back and understand what it means to be clean and unclean. And to do that, we need to go all the way back to the Old Testament and figure out what did God say to his people about these food laws in the first place. So I'm just going to flip over to Leviticus chapter 11. You don't have to flip there if you don't want to. And I'm going to read to you what God said to his people about these food laws in the first place so that we can understand what does that have to do with Acts chapter 10 and the people of God. I'm just going to read a part of it. It starts um, in verse 1. It says this, And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, These are the living things that you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. Whatever parts the hoof and is cloven-footed and chews the cud among the animals you may eat. Nevertheless, among those that chew the cud or part the hoof, you shall not eat these. The camel, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the rock badger, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the hare, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the pig, because it parts the hoof and is cloven-footed but does not chew the cud, is unclean to you. You shall not eat any of their flesh, and you shall not touch their carcasses. They are unclean to you. And this goes on for at least 30 more verses. And we're only talking about the food laws. So either somebody in God's legal department got carried away, or this was a really big deal for the people of God to understand. Did you see what he told them? He said, if you eat these certain animals, you will be unclean. And being unclean in the Old Testament was a really big deal. Because when you were unclean, it meant that you had to go outside of the camp of Israel. It meant you had to leave the protection of God's people. It meant you had to leave the presence of God on earth. It meant you were no longer fit to worship God until you were made clean again. God's people took being clean really seriously because God told them to. And so it's not a surprise then that Peter would take this, clean, this, this sort of command very seriously. Peter was one of God's people. He was Jewish and he knew that God had told him not to eat these unclean animals. So, of course, it took an angel and a vision of the Lord to undo this. What's happening in Acts chapter 10 is God is undoing what he did in Leviticus chapter 11. In Leviticus chapter 11, he said, don't eat these animals or you'll be unclean. And in Acts chapter 10, he says, I'm no longer saying that any animals are clean or unclean. It was a big deal what happened in Acts chapter 10. But, you know, I think there is another layer to this. Right, we can not only understand what God said to his people, we need to understand why he said it to them. Sometimes when we think about these Old Testament laws, we kind of think about them as a relic from a different age. And because of that, we sometimes think there's not much that we could learn from them. Well, that's just simply not true. God had a plan for his people And in these laws, he reveals something about his plan for his people and who he is that is so important for us today. And so I actually want to just take a minute and even unpack these Old Testament laws in Leviticus just another, for a few more minutes. You know, when we study the Old Testament laws, um, there's a sort of framework that I like to use that helps me sort of make sense of them. And I ask three questions of, of a passage in the Old Testament when I'm looking at the law. The first is, what's the practical reason for this law? Did God have in mind some practical purpose to take care of his people and his wisdom and goodness that we should figure out? you got to start there. But then we also want to ask, well, what does this law reveal about the nature of God? What's the theological reason for it? And then finally, because we believe that all of God's scripture points to Jesus, you have to ask, how do we understand Jesus more clearly because of this law? So what is the practical reason what is the theological reason and what is the Christological reason of any law that you're studying in the Old Testament? And I want to take that framework and apply it right here because I think it helps us make sense of what's going on in Acts chapter 10 in a really important way. So first, the practical reason. Why did God tell his people to eat this like, really strange set of animals? Well, most of the commentators first acknowledge that there probably is a food safety component to what's going on. So God in his wisdom and goodness acknowledged that a lot of the animals on this list would likely make people ill because they have a higher rate of having certain foodborne illnesses. But I think sort of more to the point of our text today, the other thing that God was doing for his people was making them distinct from the nations around them. And we know that food defines culture, right? I mean, the first time you go to a new culture, the thing you do is you try the food to try and understand who they are. And if you've been to a culture where the food is really different than your own, you know how different it feels, how isolating it feels. And I think what God is doing here is he's defining what it means to be part of the nation of Israel by defining the food laws. He's going to say, my people are going to eat these foods and not these foods, and that's going to make them different than the people that are around them. God is calling for himself a separate people. Which if you go back to think about Acts 10, it wasn't just about the food that Peter needed to see was different. He needed to see that, oh no, he could actually go and eat with the Gentiles. Because God had forbidden that. And when Israel got that wrong in the Old Testament, it did not go well for them. So Peter needed to be told, no, not only can you eat this food, but you need to be able to eat with this people. That, I think, then brings us to the theological reason, which is really important. God was setting apart for himself a people because God was holy. The word holy means being set apart. God is holy. He is righteous. He is different. He is set apart. And because God is set apart, he sets apart a people for himself that are different from the nations around them. Uh, in, verse, excuse me, in, in chapter 11 of Leviticus, verse 45, we actually see this really clearly uh, sort of explained to us. Verse 45 says this, For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God, you shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. This is the law about beast and bird and every living creature that moves through the waters and every creature that swarms on the ground, to make a distinction between the unclean and the clean, and between the living creature that they may be eaten and the living creature that may not be eaten. In other words, God is setting his people apart because God is holy. We have a holy God and a holy nation. And these food laws were part of separating God's people. And we see here a really important turn of phrase. God makes a distinction between his people and the people who were not his people. So again, returning to Peter for a moment, we understand why this was a big deal. He was told by God to be a separate people from anybody who wasn't Jewish, and eating with them would have made him unclean, because they were an unclean people. The Gentiles were not God's chosen people, and eating with them would have made Peter unable to participate in the worship of God. So now we see how important this chapter 10 of Acts is. We start out with a distinction between God's people and not God's people. And at the end, that distinction is wiped away. There are only now one people of God. And so the question is, what happened? How did that change occur? And the answer is, through the blood of Jesus. It brings us to the Christological implication of the law, which is that Jesus makes all things clean. So in the Old Testament, uncleanness was the thing that transferred from one thing to another. If you were clean and you touched something that was unclean, its uncleanness made you unclean. You do not make it clean. So, for example, if you were to touch a leper, that leper would not become clean because you touched him or her, you would become unclean. If you touched the carcass of a dead animal, you would become unclean. And, friends, that transferring of uncleanness is true for everyone except Jesus. We can just think about some of the stories that we know from his life. When he went to meet the lepers, he reached out and he touched them. And the book of Leviticus would have said that Jesus would have become unclean, but that's not what happened. When Jesus touched the leper, the righteousness and cleanness of Christ transferred to that leper, and he was made clean. And you remember the woman who was suffering from a hemorrhage, who reached out to touch Jesus' garment. Well, Leviticus would have told us that that would have made Jesus unclean, but that's not what happened. Jesus' cleanness, his power transferred to her, making her clean. And when Jesus raised a little girl from the dead... Leviticus 22 would have told us that that should have made him unclean, but it didn't. When Jesus touched that little girl, his power and righteousness transferred to her, made her clean, raised her from the dead. And the implication is this. When you come to Jesus in faith and repentance, he will make you clean. One of the ways that the Bible talks about uncleanness is to talk about sin. It's in our sin that we are made spiritually unclean, unfit to be in the presence of our Lord, and when we come to Jesus, He will make you clean. It's His cleanness that transfers to you. And the implication here, friends, is stunning and incredible and powerful. And it's this, you can't do anything that makes you so unworthy that makes you so unclean that Jesus can't wash you with his blood it doesn't matter what you've done it doesn't matter how far you have fallen it doesn't matter how much shame you feel over your sin when you come to Jesus he will reach out and he will touch you and he will wash you and he will make you clean by his blood thanks be to God for that And the point of going through all of this is that he does this for everyone. No longer is there a distinction. He doesn't only make people who are Jewish clean. He doesn't only make people who are from America clean. He doesn't only make men clean. He doesn't only make people who are white clean. There is no longer a distinction in the family of God. Jesus makes all people clean. You see, God had in mind to call to himself a people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. In order to do that, he had to wash everyone clean exactly the same way. Revelation chapter 5, talking of Jesus, says this For you were slain, and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom. And priests to God, and they shall reign on the earth one sacrifice, one people. Everyone comes to God in exactly the same way. There is no longer a distinction between Jew and Gentile. That's what's going on in Acts chapter 10. Jesus makes everyone clean. And that brings us to our third point in the sermon today that if God does not make a distinction, Neither should we. If God does not make a distinction, neither should we. You see, this text in Acts chapter 10 is one of the definitive truths in the Bible that means there is no place for racism at all in Christianity. And by that I mean, I don't mean that racism doesn't exist, I mean that in the people of God there is no place for racism whatsoever. It is totally abhorrent to the principles of the gospel. You see, there is no distinction anymore between one people or another. There is no distinction anymore between one nation and another. We all come to Christ dirty and ashamed, and we all receive his grace. God makes no distinction in how he saves people by his grace. No one, no one is worthy of God's salvation apart from Christ. Now, friends, I want to be careful about what I'm saying here because saying there is no distinction doesn't mean there's no diversity. In fact, it's the diversity of God's people that makes the unity in the gospel so beautiful in the first place. God is calling to himself people from every tribe through the blood of Jesus, and the unity in that diversity is what makes it beautiful. Cornelius didn't have to become Jewish to be saved. The beauty of Acts chapter 10 is that he's bringing together a Roman centurion and a Jewish fisherman, men who have been enemies from birth. He brings them together and makes peace among them as one people of God baptized in the same name of Jesus. If Acts chapter 10 teaches us anything, it's that no more does race or ethnicity have any place in defining the people of God And all forms of racism are totally inconsistent and abhorrent to the gospel. And what that means, friends, is that Christians need to be leading the charge against racism. No longer can we tolerate any form of racism at all, whether that is genocide happening across the world or whether that is the racism that has been a stain on our country in the form of white supremacy since its beginning or whether that is in the form of ongoing racism today. We can no longer tolerate it. We should be leading the charge against it. And friends, I'll tell you, it's just easy to get wrong. It's easy to get wrong. It's easy to think that the gospel is good enough for somebody else, but not to think that those people are therefore part of your family. It's easy to get that wrong. You know, in the 18 and 1900s in America, slaveholders used to think that the gospel was good enough for the slaves. They would make churches for slaves to hear the gospel. In the greatest form of hypocrisy I've ever seen, they would send missions to Africa to preach the gospel to these people. But they didn't think they were equal. They didn't think they were members of their family. They thought they were a lesser race of humans. And that just totally misses the entire principle of the gospel. Ephesians 3, 6 says this. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Jew and Gentile, white and black People of every nation are members of the same body. We are members of the same family. We are co-heirs together. And anything short of that just isn't good enough. And I think we need to take a moment and think maybe this just wasn't a problem for for slaveholders in the 18 and 1900s, but what kind of a problem is it for us today? And I think we just need to acknowledge for a moment that it has been an all-too-common experience of Christians of color to feel unwelcomed in white evangelical churches in the United States. Whether we like it or not, there is a distinction in the church in America. There is a distinction based on race, and that is to our shame. God, forgive us for anything that we have done To create an environment where people of color do not feel welcomed in the church of God. How can it be that people of color look to secular organizations with no reference to God whatsoever and feel like those organizations understand their pain better than the church does? It is totally incongruent with the gospel. And friends, we're part of it. and we need to figure out what we need to do differently because it just can't continue like this. And so this morning I just I would ask you to take that question really seriously in your own heart. Are there people that you feel like you can't welcome into your family? Are there certain kinds of people that you feel like you can't welcome into your family? The likelihood that those distinctions in your heart are there but it's also likely that you can't see them. It's also likely that they're subconscious and nearly impossible for you to see. And so please take it seriously. Ask someone. Think about it. Try and understand what are you doing that might be contributing to this unholy and unrighteous distinction in the people of God. Because, friends, this unity, this unity that this text pictures is a costly unity. It requires something of us and perhaps requires more of the people who have been victims of this racism than anyone. I wonder when you read this passage, who did you think this salvation was hardest for? Did you think it was harder for Peter or for Cornelius? I think it was harder for Peter. I think he was welcoming into his family a man who had been part of the oppressive Roman army that had been subjugating his people for decades. It'd be like a Uyghur saying to a Chinese captain, you are my brother in Christ. It'd be like a Holocaust survivor saying to a concentration camp guard, you are my brother in Christ. It'd be like a Tutsi saying to a Rwandan general, you are my brother in Christ. Friends, the kind of unity that is pictured in this passage is a costly one. But one of the main implications of it is that even for people who have been victims of oppression, there is a call for unity in the gospel. And that call for unity is only because we believe that all people, especially those that commit grave atrocities, are made clean by the blood of Christ. And so if you are someone who has been discriminated against, if you are someone who has suffered at the heinous hands of racism, we weep with you. We lament that with you, and we long for a time when that will be made right. We long for the vengeance of the Lord that will come when heaven comes, when Jesus returns. And so this morning I'm not asking you to overlook the wrong that has been done to you, I'm not asking you to ask to, to behave like it's never happened. To overlook the weight of those sins would be to cheapen the cross. The sins of racism are so profound and so heinous that they cost our Lord his life. But it is this morning that I would offer you an encouragement with trembling and humility, knowing that it doesn't cost me anything to ask this of you knowing that it cost Peter everything, and knowing that it cost our Lord his life to ask this of you. If you've been the victim of racism and are struggling how to imagine how you could ever really welcome one of your oppressors into your Christian family, I'd invite you to consider the words of the Apostle Peter as he reflected on the grace of God to his Roman oppressors. Peter says in Acts chapter 11, if then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? It's a forgiveness and a unity that's only possible through the blood of Jesus. And oh, how we pray that people who have suffered the hands, at the hands of racism could ever find it in their hearts to forgive. It is a heavy burden to bear. Thanks be to God that Christ can bear that burden with you and for you. Friends, as we come to the end of our time, I actually want to remind you that despite how heavy these last few moments have been, Acts chapter 10 is a hopeful chapter. Acts chapter 10 is a, is a picture of racial unity that is bought by the blood of Christ. We begin the chapter with a Roman centurion and a Jewish fisherman. And we end together with brothers in Christ made possible by the cleansing blood of Jesus. And from this chapter begins the greatest missionary journey, the greatest missionary movement in all of history. We start to see God making a church that is multi-ethnic and multinational, and it starts right here on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea thousands of years ago. And friends, we are going to pray that that multinationalism will become part of who we are today in Christ. And so as we close, I just want to leave you with the words of Christ, and then we're going to pray. This is from John chapter 10. Father, we long, we long for the time when we will be in heaven and we will be with your people, one people from every tribe and tongue and nation worshiping Jesus. And we're so thankful that the kind of unity that will be in heaven is possible now. And we pray for that unity in your church. We pray for that, not just in the church universal, but in our church. We pray that we would be one, Father, just as you and Jesus are one. And we pray that that unity that we need help with would come to glorify you as people see the kind of multi ethnic and multinational unity that is only possible through the blood of Christ. Help us, we pray. It's in the name of Jesus we ask these things. Amen.